This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Let me tell you about a no-brainer way to improve your finances. Stop letting the big banks use you as their ATM. Every week, thousands are switching from big banks and opening checking accounts at Aspiration because they're fed up with outrageous and wimpy interest rates. Aspiration will pay you up to 100 times the interest paid by big banks, and you'll have totally free access to every ATM in the world. And Aspiration is a financial firm with a conscience. They give a full 10% of their earnings to charity and let you see your own sustainability score on your purchases. Check it out at aspiration.com slash kickass. From Malcolm Gladwell and Panoply Media, check out the new season of Revisionist History, a podcast that looks at events from the past and asks whether we got it right the first time. This season will explore a murder trial from the Jim Crow South telling the story of a terrorist who had a change of heart. There'll be French fries, the saddest song in the world, making mischief, putting crazy theories to the test, and I could go on. It's going to be a wild ride, so listen to Revisionist History in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy the show. And as we get older, we start to get good at figuring out what the other person is thinking. You buy a used car, you're thinking about what that guy is thinking as he's selling it to you. Is he on my side or is he on his side? Does he have his own agenda? What's the look on his face? What's happening in his eyes? What's his body language like? All of that is taken in. It's not just, communication is not just what we say. It's everything about us that gives us a chance to find out what's in the other person's mind and vice versa. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis and welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was actor, writer, and director Alan Alda speaking about a subject he's come to know very well, communicating and relating to others. Through his Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, he works tirelessly to teach scientists and doctors how to understand and talk to their patients, the public, students, the media, politicians, grant writers, and even others in their own field. Alan Alda says he's just as proud of the work he's doing in the scientific and medical fields as he is of any of his accomplishments as an actor, writer, and director. And that's certainly saying a lot, as his accomplishments on television, stage, and film are many. Alan Alda has been inducted into the Television Hall of Fame and nominated for 34 Emmys. He's won six Emmys, plus six Golden Globes and seven People's Choice Awards. He's won the Directors Guild Award three times for his work on television, and he's been nominated for two Writers Guild Awards. He famously played Hawkeye Pierce on the classic beloved television series MASH and wrote and directed many of the episodes, including the finale, which remains the most watched episode of any television series. In addition to his many Emmy nominations for MASH, he received Emmy nominations for his performances on The Blacklist, 30 Rock, ER, and West Wing, which he also won. Alda's movies include Crimes and Misdemeanors, Everyone Says I Love You, Flirting with Disaster, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and The Band Played On, Same Time Next Year, California Suite, Tower Heist, Wonderlust, Bridge of Spies, and The Aviator, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. He also wrote and directed The Four Seasons, Sweet Liberty, A New Life, and Betsy's Wedding. He's received three Tony nominations for his roles on stage, including Glengarry Glen Ross, Neil Simon's Jake's Women, and the musical The Apple Tree. Most recently last year, he appeared as Uncle Pete in Louis C.K.'s groundbreaking web series Horace and Pete. For over 20 years, Alan Alda has worked to help broaden the public's understanding of science. He hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers on PBS for 11 years, interviewing leading scientists from around the world. In 2010, he hosted the PBS series The Human Spark, in which he interviewed dozens of scientists searching for answers to the question, what is it that makes us human? And in 2013, he hosted the miniseries Brains on Trial, also for PBS, exploring the effects of contemporary brain science on the U.S. justice system. 
He helped found the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University, where he's also a visiting professor helping to develop innovative programs that enable scientists to communicate more effectively with the public. He originated the Flame Challenge, a yearly international competition for scientists in which they compete to explain complex scientific concepts so that 11-year-olds can understand them. His first memoir, Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned, became a New York Times bestseller, as did his second one, Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself. And now he has a new book called If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Today, Alan Alda returns to the podcast to communicate with me and you what he's learned about how people interact, relate to each other, and how we often fail to connect. He'll share how an unfortunate experience with a dentist sent him on a path to teaching better communication between doctors and their patients and scientists and the public. He relates how his early experience as host of Scientific American Frontiers helped him become a much better interviewer, especially when he stopped trying to be a know-it-all and just indulged his own curiosity. He talks about what he calls the two keys to better communication— empathy, and theory of mind, and how he became his own lab rat experimenting on how to develop greater empathy and relate better to people, plus how meditation can make you a better communicator, why women in the workplace improve the whole organization, how to heal the political divide one person at a time, and whether his wife of 60 years agrees that he's really the great communicator. Coming up with the witty and delightful Alan Alda in just a moment. My guest today has earned international recognition as an actor, writer, and director. He's won seven Emmy Awards. He's received three Tony nominations, is an inductee of the Television Hall of Fame, and was nominated for an Academy Award for his role in The Aviator. Alan Alda played Hawkeye Pierce on the classic television series MASH, and his many films include Crimes and Misdemeanors, Everyone Says I Love You, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and Bridge of Spies. Mr. Alda is an active member of the science community, having hosted the award-winning series Scientific American Frontiers for 11 years on PBS and founded the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Mr. Alda has three best-selling books, including Never Have Your Dog Stuffed and Other Things I've Learned, Things I Overheard While Talking to Myself, and his latest book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating. Alan Alda, it's so great to talk to you again. Thank you. Nice to see you again. Well, last time we talked a lot about the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science and the type of work that you're doing there with helping scientists and people in the medical field communicate better with politicians, with audiences, with patients, and so forth. You have this terrific new book, which more generally covers communication and relating to people, not just when dealing with scientists and with medical doctors, but... You talk about communicating with your spouse, communicating in the office, teachers communicating. You're kind of becoming a communication guru, mm. and you open it by talking about the problem of communication becoming glaringly obvious to you during an interaction that you had with your dentist a few years ago. You want to start by telling that story? Yeah. I, the, the problem was I had to have a front tooth removed. And the surgeon that was going to do it had an, an operation, a procedure that, that he had invented that he was very proud of and thought would do me a lot of good. It would help get a blood supply to the socket. And he took the tooth out. <laughs> the only trouble was he, the only thing he said to me before he started the operation, when he had the scalpel like an inch from my mouth, he said, now there'll be some tethering. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, what? He said, tethering, tethering. <laughs> What, what do you mean tethering? He said, tethering, tethering. He, he just would say that one word. I didn't know what he was talking about. And I was afraid because there he was in his surgical gown. You know, he seemed so formal and official. I should have said, put the knife down and tell me what you're going to do to me. <laughs> and and instead happened? of that, I let him do it. 
And a couple of weeks later, I, I was making a movie and I was supposed to smile in a, a scene in the movie and I, I was sneering instead of smiling. <laughs> and the problem was, he, as part of the procedure, he had cut that little piece of tissue that is between your upper lip and your gum. Right. The yeah. frenum. And he, when I called him and told him about it and said, you, you ought to explain a little better what you're going to do to people. It would be helpful to know. He said, I told you there was a second stage to the operation. I, and I can't remember if I let him go back into my mouth. <laughs> but my, in any case, my smile was a little different from then on. And I was one good thing was I was able to play villains a lot better after that. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, the other good thing was it really galvanized for me the problem that doctors and dentists and all people in the medical profession have the people they're dealing with don't understand the medicine the way they understand it. And they mm -hmm. have to go an extra step to help us understand what's going on with us. And there's a really, there's a, there's a value to the, to the medical person to do this because first of all, with better communication, lawsuits go down. If, if, if a mistake is made and the doctor apologizes, at least in one case in Michigan, one one uh, hospital there, the the lawsuits went were cut almost in half by just wow. saying I'm sorry. I'm You're sorry. Kidding me? Oh, yeah, that totally the, goes against conventional wisdom, doesn't well, it? Well, it goes against <laughs> the, the lawyer's advice. They yeah. say deny the whole thing. You know, yeah, and don't say anything. But it the all we want is to know we're being heard. Mm -hmm. We also want you to not make mistakes willy nilly. But a mistake yeah. is a mistake. We we're capable of understanding that. Yeah, and there still were some lawsuits, but not. Not to the degree there were before, and we need we need to know we're being heard when mm -hmm. we're in just in an examining room. Mm -hmm. So we train we've trained thousands over eight thousand scientists and doctors in the past eight years, and it's from wow. them that I realized we could do what you said a minute ago: go beyond that kind of training and get into the problem of communication that we have in. All our all the different parts of our lives, at work and the family, um, between lovers, the whole, everything. Yeah, and you talk about when you began your eleven-year run as host of Scientific American Frontiers, you didn't have any experience at interviewing. Really, I had you were very an actor. Little experience. Yeah. yeah, and you sort of bungled your way through your first interview. I've certainly been there. What were your biggest mistakes that you learned from early you know, on? The mistake that I made in many different ways was I wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. The person who's talking has to listen a lot, you know, in a way more than the person listening. But here I was in, in the job of listening and responding. I wanted to get out from them what their science was, but I, I wasn't paying attention to what they had to say, I wasn't. I wasn't basing my questions on what came out of them. I had a list right. of questions, <laughs> and I learned yeah, as time went on not to do that because it wasn't personal. It didn't. It didn't have an mm -hmm. exchange that was alive. Yeah, and I'm certainly guilty of that. I mean, it is difficult. I'm sure that it took some getting used to because you know you're always thinking about the next question on your list. I'm sitting here looking at my computer sometimes. You know, I'll tell you. We know what's it's funny hard. about this. The the book seems to have been kind of convincing to people. Really, I've been interviewed now a lot about the book, and four of the interviewers said, "I'm going to try what you did on on your yeah. science show." And one guy <laughs> said, "I'm closing my computer right now." Oh wow! <laughs> and then we just had a conversation. Okay. And the funny thing was. Now, I don't want to put you under any pressure. I'm, I'm tempted, <laughs> but I'm also scared. <laughs> the funny thing was I gave a better interview because— Really? I, that makes sense. You know, the funny thing about having a list of questions is not only are you thinking of the next question, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, what's the next question going to be? Oh, really? And then when you say that huh. question, I'm thinking, all right, what's what's my answer to that? <laughs> so it's a little canned on both sides. Yeah. But if you're responding directly to what I just said, then it comes as a surprise to me, and there's something more lively happening between us. Well, it's also a good excuse for them not to have to read your book before the interview. <laughs> did they? Did well, you ask them if they actually read the book? <laughs> uh, surprised at how many people have actually read the book. It, oh, good. It, it sounds to me like maybe that maybe the book reads well because usually you just have time to read the first couple of pages. And I then, read it cover to cover. Oh, you know, that's wonderful. It and makes I me feel it. good. So I was learning 
I'm thinking about what you asked me a second ago about how we went from teaching scientists to how we're now talking to a wide range of people in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm talk. I'm I'm trying to show how what we've learned with scientists is helpful to everybody else. And the way I started to understand that was we were hearing from the scientists themselves that it applies to more people. Mm-hmm. One one uh, scientist said to me, "You got to you got to teach other disciplines this." My wife is an art historian. I can't understand a word she says. <laughs> <laughs> and another, and this this was amazing. Another scientist said, "This workshop has saved my marriage." Wow. So I thought, really? this is, we, we just have to put it in, in terms. I keep saying mm-hmm. we, the book is me. <laughs> the work we do with scientists is us. Yeah. But I took what we've learned over eight years of training scientists and doctors, and I, I thought of specific ways it applies to the workplace and salesmanship mm-hmm. and all kinds of things like that. And it really... Um, it it has it's interesting. It's changed me in the course of writing it. Mm-hmm. I listen to people better. Really? I notice them more when I'm talking to them, and I therefore I have I have a little more empathy for them, mm-hmm. meaning I understand a little bit about what they're going through. So I find people less annoying. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's I mean, a good selling point right there. It really is. <laughs> I'm so glad I got into this. Yeah. And speaking of the interviewing techniques and so forth, you said that you kind of started off by doing a lot of research and you had to kind of dial it back and you stopped doing research. And it reminds me, speaking of interviewers and so forth, kind of what Larry King says he does. He says he never reads someone's book. Do we sometimes misuse questions as an opportunity to be a know-it-all and show off everything we know instead of actually approaching it from curiosity? Yeah, well, that's what I did in the first few interviews. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was proud of what little I thought I knew, mm-hmm. and I tried to ask questions, unfortunately, that I thought revealed what I knew, when in fact I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. <laughs> and later I would think, what was that look on the scientist's face? Because I wasn't taking it in at the time, but I could remember he looked a little weird. And it was because I didn't understand the work as well as I thought I did, his work or her work. And when I stopped trying to over-prepare and went in with just a general knowledge of what the work was about, then I could ask really naive questions out of a fund of ignorance, but also a fund of curiosity. I really did want to know. And... That meant that when I got an answer to a question, if I didn't understand it, I would just keep pressing. I would just keep pressing for more answers. What do you mean by that? I don't understand. It doesn't match what you said a minute ago. And it probably helps them yeah. come down to your level rather than treating you as someone who already knows these things. That's they, right. They probably simplified it to whatever level you're understanding it at. you got to meet yeah. the person you're trying to teach where they mm-hmm. are. Yeah. You can't start... 10 steps past where they are. They won't mm-hmm. know where you are. They won't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's a, that's something that we all tend to do because we all have a language that's, that's private. We all have a language appropriate to our work. Mm-hmm. In show business, we have our own lingo. And, and that jargon that we use, it's casual, it's fun, but it's totally hard to understand by yeah. someone who's not been on, say, a movie set. And <laughs> but you uh, also say it's addictive. <laughs> it, it is. Well, Jargon. it feels good to have your own private language. Yeah. You know, kids sometimes develop, develop their own private language. <laughs> we all like to, we're, we're the in ones who know this and the other ones don't know it. But if you're really trying to communicate with somebody, you can't, you can't exercise that lingo on them. Mm-hmm. If, not if your objective is to inform them. If your objective is to show them how smart you are, <laughs> and you don't mind looking like a dope doing it, <laughs> then, then you can talk in some foreign language. It's usually, it's been called by uh, writers, the uh, curse of knowledge. It was That term came yeah. from a couple of uh, economists a couple of decades ago. And what it means is, the way, the way it's used in communication, what it means is if I understand something in such complexity and depth that I forget what it's like not to understand it with that, depth of understanding, mm-hmm. then, then I'm cursed with my knowledge. Otherwise, yeah. knowledge isn't a curse. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. But yeah, you isolate yourself. And you t- I think in one instance in the book, you talk about someone comes in for a diagnosis and a doctor 
throws a bunch of information at them and a bunch of technical jargon when all the patient wants to know is, am I going to be all right? Yeah. Or what do I have to do? Right. And, and they just kind of starting of with whether or not you're going to be all right. Yeah. If you're going to be all right. Lead with that. It's a good, yes. Yeah. That's, that's the big, that's the headline. Yeah. <laughs> do we often approach communication with the wrong mindset in that we seem to think that if we're not getting a point across, the problem is that person is not understanding it or trying it hard enough to understand yeah, I it think instead I, of it's you our know, fault. We, m- most of us have probably had teachers in grammar school who said, come on, pay attention, concentrate. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, and what we try to teach in workshops is if you have something you want somebody else to understand, it's your job to make sure they follow you. Mm-hmm. Because especially if you're talking to a fairly, you know, well-rounded adult, a person with an education, but they've spent their lives doing something other than what you've been doing. You've been doing this complex work in some special field, and they're not going to know what you know. So it's your job to bring them up to speed. Now, the funny thing is, this isn't just scientists talking to the public. It's scientists talking to other scientists who aren't exactly in the same field. And there have been some terrible instances of miscommunication among highly trained scientists because they've been trained and experienced in different uh, categories, different specialties. Right. But it's also true if you're, if you're selling me something. You have your own lingo back at the office. Your engineers have their own lingo. Yeah. you got to help me know what it is you want me to buy. And you right. have to find out what I need. If I don't need what you make the biggest profit on, but I do need something that you also sell, you should go right to that. Because if your objective is to help me out, I'm going to be a customer for life. Mm-hmm. And it all has to do with this basic idea of communication. The other person is where your attention has to be, not on what you think or know or what your goal is, what you want to get out of them. It's not going to work. Okay, so... Stop trying to convince people that they need the product that you made. Make a product for their needs. That would help. And then yeah. once they buy the darn thing, put some instructions in there that are <laughs> that are legible. Yeah. You and know, easy packaging. Yeah, That's another easy packaging. point for you. I, I find that companies are communicating with me every time I buy something. Mm-hmm. I get it home. And the communication that they're making is, bet you can't get into this package. <laughs> I had that just this morning, and I thought of you because I, I bought a new memory card for my computer. And damned if it didn't take me five or ten minutes to get that thing open with scissors with my hands. Yeah. I ended up using a box cutter. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in danger of slicing your fingers. Exactly. <laughs> on, the, on the plastic itself that's holding yeah. the product together. Yeah. And I love that uh, story I found where somebody couldn't get the package open. And the package said, open this with a pair of scissors. The problem was it was a package of scissors. <laughs> so they had no chance. I wonder if there have ever been studies of how many things get returned just because the packaging is, is so I frustrating. Wonder, I don't know about a study like that, but I did come across a study that said, I believe the figure was 40% of the people questioned said that they would not go back to a product that they had too much trouble opening. Wow. They would buy something else. It's a huge loss. Yeah, it is. I mean, <laughs> for a company. They're, they're packaged wow. that way for understandable reasons, mm-hmm. but they have to do, they got to meet us halfway. Yeah. The thought is not on the people that they're most interested in, which is the customer. Yeah. It's on some, something else. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Alan Alda when we come back in just a moment. Do you need a custom whiteboard or have a large office build out and don't know where to get help? Are you tired of buying from a big box store and never having anyone you can talk to about your project? Let U.S. Markerboard be your source for standard and custom whiteboards, glass boards, and so much more. Servicing all of North America and every walk of life, from contractors to schools and everyone in between, and with 20,000 different board types, sizes, and colors, U.S. Markerboard has a huge selection of product and can make your idea into a reality. Plus, they offer competitive prices and, more importantly, superior U.S.-based customer service that you won't get from the big guys. U.S. Markerboard's knowledgeable and friendly folks take the guesswork out of purchasing whiteboards and communication boards. 
Just go to usmarkerboard.com today and use promo code KICK at checkout to get 10% off your order. Find out for yourself why U.S. Markerboard is the premium supplier of whiteboards and visual display products in North America. That's usmarkerboard.com and use the promo code KICK for 10% off. In today's digital economy, customer experience is the new competitive edge, and Couchbase Engagement Database is the only database specifically designed to deliver brilliant experiences that keep modern customers coming back for more. Old-school transactional and analytical databases can't deliver the exceptional experiences customers expect today, much less the ones they'll demand tomorrow. But the Couchbase data platform is built on the most powerful NoSQL technology to give your web, mobile, and Internet of Things apps unparalleled agility, manageability, and performance at any scale. You can learn more at couchbase.com slash kickassnews. Only the Couchbase Engagement Database is designed to deliver ever richer and more personalized customer experiences as your business innovates and grows. It supports millions of interactions while easily adapting to changing business requirements. It's always on and always fast with constant high performance and built-in fault tolerance. It keeps your data secure everywhere. It has built-in smarts for highly personalized engagement. It's right at home on-premises, in the cloud, or as a hybrid, and it gives users a seamless, amazing, and always-on mobile experience. Ready to revolutionize your customer experience? Learn more at couchbase.com slash kickassnews. And now, back to the podcast. In talking about communication, you say that the two keys to it are empathy and theory of mind. Now, empathy, I have a pretty good grasp of. I think I understand that. Theory of mind, explain what that is. Yeah, I, I try to make this clear. Um, it's, it was hard for me to get at first. It, it's based, <laughs> the notion is based on this interesting thing that I didn't know about till I did a science program on PBS on this subject. And it was that until people are around four or five years old, they don't realize that what they're thinking could be different from what you're thinking. So they assume that everyone that knows, knows what they know. Huh? Yes, exactly. Wow. And, and you, there are interesting studies that huh. demonstrate that. Like a kid might look at a cartoon of somebody coming into a room, putting a cookie on a table. Then she leaves the room. Somebody else comes in next, moves the cookie to a cupboard, they see it, the kid sees it go into a cupboard. The first woman comes back and you stop the tape and you say, where will the lady think the cookie is? <laughs> now the kid knows that the cookie has been moved and they think she knows that too. And they'll often, most often say, she thinks it's in the cupboard, but she, she only knew it was on the counter where she put it. Right. So in reality, she would probably come in not see the cookie and wonder where it is and not have any idea it's in a cupboard. Okay. But the kid, up until the age of four or five, believes that what she knows, the other person knows. Okay. So at around that age, they start to develop a theory of the other person's mind, mm -hmm. what the other person is probably thinking. And they, they can deduce what they're liable to be thinking or not. They'd be totally confused about it, but they have the sense of separation between my mind and yours. Okay, and that's around the time they start learning they can lie, <laughs> not not before. Because yeah. what's the point of lying if you if, if they know what if you're they thinking? They know better. Yeah. yeah, right. Interesting. So the funny thing is, when we do this cursive knowledge thing, and we assume the other person knows what we know, it's just like the four year old who thinks you know what I know because I know right. it. Yeah, it's such a strange retreat we make <laughs> to this childish stance yeah that makes sense because i think about it you know little kids always getting so frustrated and throwing a tantrum because they're trying to communicate something you don't understand yeah or they're acting like you're ridiculous or a fool because you don't knowing, get it knowing the other person yeah. is thinking something else is a good first step mm -hmm. to thinking to finding out how you can just work something out with them and empathy there are a lot of definitions of empathy that people use, and they often True. don't describe what they mean by empathy. Some people use empathy to mean that you have a good heart and you're mm -hmm. compassionate and sympathetic with okay. another person. How do you define it? I don't use it that way. I use it just as a tool for communication where you can make an estimate of what the other person is feeling. 
maybe maybe even an estimate of why they're feeling that, how they got mm-hmm. to that point. And you can use that to meet them where they are. You know, mm-hmm. we were talking about meeting them in terms yeah. of what they know. You also have to meet them in terms of, if you possibly can, in terms of what what state they're in emotionally. If somebody's if somebody's mother just died and they're depressed and you can pick up those cues, you may not know the mother died, but you can see cues on the face of the person. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a good idea to start selling them <laughs> on a on a ticket to a party. Yeah. And I was interested that you being the scientist that you are now, you used yourself as your own guinea pig on how to develop empathy. And the most fascinating part for me was that you talk about how you would do this experiment where all throughout the day, every person you interacted with, you would try to figure out in your head how that person is feeling. And not only that, but you would try to name that emotion, give a one word name for that emotion. What did that do for you? It was a really interesting experience. And the reason I did it was I realized that the the way we teach scientists and doctors and other people now, people in business, women in business and that kind of thing, the way we do it is to put them through improv exercises and then do role playing and go back to the improv exercises and merge those experiences. But I realized that you have to keep doing this or it goes away. And I can't keep going to improv classes and the people who read the book even less so. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is what isn't there some kind of personal workout I can develop that I can I would find would keep me in tune with other people? Mm-hmm. So I started this exercise that you described. Everywhere I went, I would be trying to read people's emotions, and I was paying more attention to people. And that's when I began to realize it was. It seemed like it was making a change in me, and that change seemed to be picked up by the people I was talking with, and they seemed to change. And there was this kind of dynamic wow. relationship, like that taxi driver who picked me up at Columbus Circle. <laughs> yeah. And he said, uh, where are you going? And I and I got started to get angry because I don't like, they're not supposed to ask you where you're going. Right. They, yeah. It's a law. Then, they got to take yeah. you where you're going. Yeah. And I thought... <laughs> I got to do this empathy thing. So why is he saying that? I thought, well, it's the end of the day. Maybe he's tired. He has to get mm-hmm. his cab back. Somebody's waiting it's for him. So I told him where I was going. He said, okay, get in. Then I get in the cab. He says, I tell him the address. He says, what's the cross street? Now I'm crazy again. <laughs> How he, do you know the cross street? You were supposed to know the yeah. cross street, I'm thinking. And instead of that, instead of saying that and getting hostile, I said, I'm looking it up for you on my iPhone. <laughs> now now we're empathetic, like to yeah. the point of no return. <laughs> and he says, you know, you're a nice person. People get in this cab, they don't care about me at all. I've had to go to the bathroom for the last half hour, and I'm really uncomfortable. I'm, you're a nice person to do. And I said, well, don't, don't, now I'm, I'm returning the favor. Just drop me at the corner. I'll walk the rest of the way. He said, no, no, you're too nice. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take you where you're going. The guy is giving up his kidneys for me now. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing was, that could have been from, I might not have even gotten the cab ride because I would have right. walked away in anger Yeah. Uh, before yeah. I started this, this See, attempt to try to yeah. read the other person. See, now, if this was a movie or some type of a comedy, you two would end up becoming best friends and traveling <laughs> right. around Europe for a well, month actually, together and have in, some big uh, he's, experience. He, he's in the other room now. <laughs> yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, actually, I need a ride back. So. <laughs> Is he licensed in L.A.? (laughs) Um, Yeah, you you know, the other thing that you say in here is that people who don't understand their own emotions very well also have trouble understanding other people's emotions and relating to other people. That's what I hear from scientists, and that's very interesting. And what I find is the other side of that is true as well. Mm -hmm. The more empathy you develop, the more you are aware of your own emotions, the more freely things come up, the more you trust what mm-hmm. you're about to say. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's, um, there's, there's more of an easy flow between what's way in the back of your head mm-hmm. and what's in the other person's head. Huh. There are fewer sensors and filters, I think. It's more yeah. intimate. It's more personal. You, huh. you trust the encounter more. Okay. So lack of self-awareness translates to lack of ability to understand others. Huh? Yeah, it, it, self-awareness, I would say, it's like, like self-awareness, but it's m- more like lack of, lack of fear of how you're doing. Oh, okay. You know okay. what I mean? 
I mean, yeah. I think you are in a way, in a way, more self-aware. You're more mm-hmm. able to be yourself, mm-hmm. and that's the, that's so important to communication because yeah. no matter who you're communicating with—a spouse or a child—if you don't seem authentically you, it's mm-hmm. really not going to work very well. Yeah. I mean, you can say from morning till night, "I love you, hun." <laughs> But <laughs> she can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that keeps coming up constantly in conversations I have with scientists and educators, everything is meditation. Mm. Now, you talk about how when someone proposed meditation to you, you kind of looked at it the way I look at it right now. It's still kind of hippy dippy and new a- too yeah, new age I for was me. Afraid of that. But you said that uh, you were convinced by. Of all people, Marlo Thomas and Justice Stephen Breyer. <laughs> yeah, good How combo. did they uh, win you over to meditation? <laughs> well, I, le- I learned from them that the way they do it, and they seem to do it regularly, is to mainly just be aware of their own breathing and mm-hmm. sit quietly, eyes closed, I guess, and not work too hard on keeping thoughts out, but keep returning to that sense of awareness of the breathing mm-hmm. and um they uh, they seem to get a great deal out of it and i i often get a good a good deal out of it too the only thing is i fall asleep almost immediately oh yeah yeah <laughs> okay so well it's I, basically I, the same so breathing like, exercise that they say helps put you to sleep isn't it do so many seconds in hold it and then breathe out yeah well that's what happens to me okay. so i <laughs> It may be helping with the empathy, but then I, yeah. I, I have more empathic dreams. Oh, okay. Well, if you're well-rested, you probably are more empathetic, I imagine, yeah. too. I'm not as cranky. Yeah. It's no secret that women are kind of predisposed to have more empathy and to be able to relate and, in and general, tell people's emotions in general than yeah. men. You say that having more women in the workplace actually improves the whole team, the whole organization. Yeah, How does any, that work? Well, that studies, I was surprised and happy to see that studies uh, suggest that the more women on a team, mm-hmm. plus the more able the team is to express their opinions, the more uh, emotionally they are aware, socially aware of one another. Those three things um, are indicators of better teamwork, regardless mm-hmm. of the task you give the team. They're also, they also tend to be more innovative. And the higher, in another study or several studies, the higher women rise in decision-making positions in a company, the better the company does on its bottom line. Wow. Now, isn't this weird that if that happens, why is it still a struggle? Why aren't companies yeah. clamoring to, to help women rise up in the company? Because they're going to make more money. Yeah. So I don't get it. But one of the things we're doing is I've started a company called All the Communication Training, ACT, oh. ACT for short, A-C-T. <laughs> and uh, our first project is a workshop for women in business because there are still, with all the advantages, all the yeah. advances, I mean to say, with all the advances that have been made, it's still common for women to be interrupted at the conference table, to have their ideas mm-hmm. appropriated by someone else. Yeah. And that other person gets the credit. Uh, a whole range of problems that are almost taken for granted by the women I've talked to. They don't like it, but they have to cope with it. So what we try to do is give them tools to navigate around those barriers Mm -hmm. as long as the barriers continue to exist. Of course, the culture, ideally, the culture should change and those barriers should come down. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, the women have to negotiate the barriers. They have to negotiate Mm -hmm. the waters, navigate the waters. So, uh, it's it's very heartening to see the confidence that builds the t- the tools they develop for say for stopping people interrupting them for not being given assignments that matter that lead to bigger and better assignments so would you say then that women are the grease yes we're the trying grease to get on more, the wheels of communication right we or, need greasier women yeah <laughs> greasier women okay <laughs> I, I wouldn't have put it that way until you brought it up <laughs> i hope your wife doesn't listen um, speaking of that i have to ask what how how good of a communicator does your wife say that you are Oh, she laughs about the whole thing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, people ask us often. You know, we've been married sixty years, so people say, "What? Thanks." They say, "What's the secret of a happy marriage and a long marriage?" Arlene says, "The secret of a long marriage is a short memory." (laughs) 
That's actually really good advice. Don't hang on to stuff. Huh? Yeah, don't have a grudge. I'm actually, she, she's always laughing at me. I'm very good at carrying a grudge. Not against her, but against most most slights. You yeah. know? I'm trying to get over that. I think with this work on empathy, I eventually will. Yeah, you'll get there. Just name more emotions. Look at people's faces. I'll never forget you said that. Yeah, exactly. That's a little scary. Um <laughs> What about writing? You say, you say yeah. in the book that you can even have better communication skills that translates into, say, your emails or writing essays, even text, maybe? Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. Mm -hmm. It's something I use myself, and I'm, I'm glad I do because my writing has improved since I really started to concentrate on this. Really? When you don't have a person sitting in front of you whose face you can read. Yeah, but instead, it's you're writing hard. for them. You don't know when and where they're going to read this. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're not picking up clues from body language or the sound of the person's voice. But what you can do, what I try to do, is imagine as you write how it's landing on them. Think, huh. You know, most of us, when we concoct a message, whether it's an email or an essay or a report, we're thinking of the exact right way to say it. Mm-hmm. We're not necessarily thinking of the experience of the person reading it. Okay. And that's a different thing. It's a, because if we want to say it in the exact right way, we're liable to inject three or four phrases in the beginning of the sentence before we get to what the sentence is about. Oh, interesting. We jam-pack the sentence huh. with all the things so we can have a, a really rich, interesting, information-filled sentence which when it's read, sometimes the reader has to go back two or three times yeah. to figure out what the sentence is about. Huh. I've, I've experienced many sentences like that, and I really yeah. don't like it. I want to be able okay. to be led easily from one thought to another. So you want to open with the most pertinent information right. in the sentence? You want to say, what's the sentence about? Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. Yeah. That's what we want to find out about. There's a, a wonderful person who's analyzed this. His name is George Gopen, G-O-P-E-N. And uh, I r try to follow his advice. You can look him up on the internet. Okay. You can read his books. He's, he, he has identified what he feels are things that people are expecting, the expectations the reader has mm -hmm. about the structure of a sentence, about the structure of a paragraph. Okay. And it's really helpful because, you know, what? one thing it does that you don't expect, it clarifies your own thinking. Oh really? Yeah, because you say, "Is this what I you really mean to it? say?" I'm not yeah. really saying what I'm what I think I mean. Hmm. And do I really mean that? Yeah. Maybe I mean this. Maybe there are two contrasting ideas here, and I've yeah. jammed them together. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up because you talk about storytelling, and you say if you're proposing an idea, maybe propose the counter to that. Propose an alternative idea just to throw that out there to lure the reader or the audience in uh, or an antagonist yes, for your exactly. idea to overcome. Yeah, that, that's uh, right. I, yeah. That, because what interests me in, in, in stories is the dramatic action that you mm -hmm. have in plays where the hero is headed towards some great goal, but there's an obstacle in the way and the hero has to fight through the obstacle to get to the goal. That, that sounds sort of simple-minded that we see stories like that all the time. But when we tell stories to try to sell a product or sell an idea, we tend to forget that and we just say, here's what we want, here's how we get to yeah. it. Whereas it's much more interesting to have this opposition. That's why I think yeah, even in an essay, an you, you, you can help create that arc in an essay by introducing an opposing idea. If you say, mm -hmm. we got to have democracy, everybody is free. On the other hand, as people have said for centuries now, Democracy can be mob rule. What about that? Right. So now it gives you something. <laughs> okay. You have a struggle of ideas that you're, you're not just saying, here's what I think, take it or leave it. Yeah. You're allowing another idea to oppose your own idea, and uh -huh. it becomes an interesting struggle to watch. It's like you're, now you're watching a wrestling match. You're not just watching <laughs> somebody yeah. gobbling up his cake. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with it. So give people something to root for. Huh? Yeah, 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 I think, yeah. In this age where everyone is so siloed in their own echo chamber and no one seems to be finding common ground, do you give much thought to how people on opposite sides of the political spectrum might be able to better communicate or relate to each other, make progress? Well, it, 
I, I think it sure would be nice if all oh, of yeah. us on, on all sides, and it's getting to be not so much both sides. Now we're having yeah. a, a bunch of sides yeah. competing for attention and competing for the chance to say they're right and everybody else is wrong. Mm-hmm. But not and listening to each not other. Not listening, because yeah. in fact, if you really listen to the other person and try to figure out where they're coming from, there are probably underlying values that you both share. Mm-hmm. And if you really do share them, and if you can actually both acknowledge that you have those values, there's at least a chance to have a toehold on a conversation. Mm-hmm. But if as soon as you hear what the other person's expressed point of view is, if you decide that's crazy, this is an evil person. Yeah, shut down. Who, there's no chance. And if the two of you are supposed to vote on passing a law, then we're, we're, all, we're all in trouble. Yeah. So maybe would you want to start with finding some kind of a, a mutual love of the country, a mutual desire to do better? Yeah, wherever you find it, whatever connection you find. It might Maybe the basic thing of, yeah, any of those things. Mm-hmm. You know what I was very interested in to see was the way George Mitchell, when he went to Ireland, to talk to people who had been yeah. shooting each other for generations. Yeah. And he sat them down at a table, and all day long they argued. At night, though, at dinner, they were not allowed to talk business. They could only talk about their childhood experiences, <laughs> things they shared in common. And the next day, each day, the conversations where they were at odds became less contentious because they saw each other as people for the wow. first time. Yeah, And the same Makes thing sense. happened in, apparently in the Oslo Accords where the Palestinians and the uh, Israelis were brought together. Mm-hmm. During the day, uh, demonizing one another at night, finding out that they shared a common humanity. Yeah, and I think you talk about in the book how you did the same thing with MASH. Yes. The cast would always we weren't so would much hang at, out. Huh? We weren't so much at odds as the Palestinians. Right, right, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we were different people, and mm-hmm. each of us had quirks, mm-hmm. you know? And we we knew we had to appear to be, and in, we had to appear to be friends on the show, mm-hmm. colleagues. Yeah. And the best way to do that was to become that in real life. And so we sat in a circle almost all day, every day, when we weren't acting on the, in, a, in front of the camera. And we just made one another laugh, mm-hmm. made fun of each other, told stories. <laughs> Once in a while, we'd go over our lines. But mostly, we were just yeah. kidding around and having fun. Yeah. And that, that connection carried over on camera. Yeah, because then it looks more like you're all kind of in this same struggle together. Right. It's not a question of I yeah. say my line and then you say your right. line. Right. Regardless of how you say it, I say my line the way I'm going to say mm-hmm. it. You know, that's that's dead. Yeah. What we had was the life of relating, connectedness. Mm-hmm. You tell this great story about Larry Gelbart, mm-hmm. uh, the great writer, wrote for Broadway, wrote for MASH and television. Um, I've never heard this story before, but I guess someone... Tried to rob him, and yeah, he, he turned the coming, situation around. I know, huh? it was amazing. I never was, heard that it story. It was all an outburst of empathy on his part. Mm-hmm. He was coming home to his house in Beverly Hills late at night. I know it might have been midnight. And a guy stepped out of the bushes holding a gun and said, open the front door of your house and uh, let me in. And I guess he wanted his money or jewelry or whatever he might find in there. So Larry, instead of saying, you know, how dare you or, you know, I'm calling the police. He said to the guy, you know, you're too smart to do this. What Mm -hmm. about if I help you get a job? Now, there was a longer conversation than that, but that was the gist of it. The next day, he got the guy a job. Wow. And I think he turned the guy's life around. So not only didn't he get robbed, he did a mitzvah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I wonder what job did he give him, do you know? Uh, he didn't give him a job. He helped him, helped oh, he helped him, him get, get a, a job, job from somebody else. No kidding. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, or maybe he turned him into a comedy writer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would say love to know line, where he is now. <laughs> say this line or I'll shoot you. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we go, uh, last time we talked at length about the Alan Alda Institute for Communicating Science, and you have this annual contest called the Flame Challenge, where you ask people to explain a scientific concept to an 11-year-old. I believe you do a different one each year. Yeah. What was this year's Flame Challenge? This year Challenge? was What is Energy? And the questions were oh. always suggested by 11-year-olds. And the interesting thing is, 
that real 11-year-olds are the judges. <laughs> we don't do any of the judging. It's all what the 11-year-olds decide. Now, th what was so great this year, it made me feel like a million bucks, the video category of the contest was won by a young scientist, and she uh, lives in Australia, and she studied our training. She took our oh, workshop really? oh, at, that's at the girl. Australian <laughs> National University. Yeah. And she was voted by the 11-year-olds as the best communicator. <laughs> How did she explain energy in her video? She used a chicken. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to tune in, look at the video on, uh, on uh, flamechallenge.org, O-R-G. Okay. And, uh, and you can see how she convinced 11-year-olds <laughs> that they understood energy. Well, definitely check that out, folks. Once more, the book is called, If I Understand You, Would well, I Have... Well, 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 just, well, just, if right. I understood you, would oh, I have... I messed up. It's okay. <laughs> okay. It makes them, it lodges it better in their mind if we correct <laughs> yeah. it. Okay. Well, okay. I'll let you say it. Then. Okay. The book is called, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? <laughs> my Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating by Alan Alda. Mr. Alda, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thank you. I really had fun. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Just a reminder, the Couchbase Engagement Database is the only database specifically designed to deliver brilliant customer experiences across all your web, mobile, and IoT apps. You get unparalleled agility, manageability, and performance at any scale, and your customers get continuously richer experiences. Learn more at couchbase.com slash kickassnews. Thanks again to the delightful Alan Alda for joining me on the podcast. You can order his new book, If I Understood You, Would I Have This Look on My Face? My Adventures in the Art and Science of Relating and Communicating on Amazon. Or download the audio version for free with a special trial offer just for our listeners at audibletrial.com slash kickassnews. To keep up with everything Alan Alda is up to, visit alanalda.com and follow him on Twitter at at Alan Alda. To donate and learn more about the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science, go to alanaldalearningcenter.org. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at Kick-Ass News Pod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash KickAssNews or click on the donate button at KickAssNews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.